What's going on, everybody? For Cryptocurrent, I'm Stephen Miller, and you are watching The Aftershock, the show where we bring you the latest and greatest from the world of Web3. I am joined today, as always, by my co-host, Richard Carthon. Richard, how are you doing today? What's up, everybody? Doing good. Um, pretty excited that there's been a little rally in the crypto markets for whatever reason, uh, leading into uh, the, the big thing that is this week, which is the U.S. elections, which I think is going to have some implications on the traditional markets as well as what we're seeing here in the crypto markets, but enjoying a little uh, green in, in, in the market uh, of late. So I'll, I'll take it. Hopefully it continues. So feeling a little of optimism going into this week. But how are you doing, Steve? You know, Rich, going into the show, I was feeling pretty good. Like everything that you were saying was starting to look up. I was looking at the, you know, polls. It seems like things may end up a little bit more fiscally, um, say, responsible from the governmental point of view and a little bit more crypto friendly. But then we got this breaking news. Breaking news. The... Uh, property that is known as the decentralized YouTube called Library just officially has been ruled against in its case against the SEC, where they officially deemed that their token is in fact a security. Now, the reason why this is such a big story and why I'm pretty sure it's going to start acting as a counter piece in the current you know market situation is you've got a really, really compelling project that in like the legal sense, had a very similar case to Ripple, now is essentially going to be used as precedent. And the problem with that is the way it was written, I haven't done a full review of what it said in the summary judgment, but from what I understand in the you know immediate analysis is it is having implications that may in fact reflect even Ethereum as a security. So I don't even know if like these judgments are going to get us any closer to actual regulatory clarity or if it's just going to muddy the water even further. But right now, it seems kind of bleak. What is your immediate read on this and how it may affect the overall market and how the SEC goes forward? Uh, it's definitely bleak if they're somehow wrapping Ethereum into a security. Uh, again, I don't have enough information on this breaking news to be able to accurately report on it. But just listening to the headline and, and, and what you are saying, uh, it's not great. So um, I really hope that they don't try to tie Ethereum into this and try to make it a security. Because then if they do, then that does mean that like, hey, maybe there is jurisdiction in the U.S. to go after people if, if it's a security, right? So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, cascading effects that can happen if, if that's the case. But uh we will have hopefully more information on that for you in, in next week's show. But uh, man, way to way to kick this off with a bank. <laughs> Look, man, I, I am nothing but honest, but at, to start the show off with a piece that can cast quite a bit of FUD um, is not, it's not the best look, right? So we're here to reverse course for you. But if this is your first time joining us, please know it's not always sunshine and rainbows and crypto land, but that doesn't mean that you are not supposed to be informed at home. That's our job to make sure that you are. So we're going to jump into this week's Aftershock, where we keep you updated and get you filled in on all the things shaping the future of crypto. Let's hit it. The Aftershock. 
So at the top of our Web3 lightning round is another interesting story where the uh, feds just keep on winning this week. And that, of course, is where the feds have officially scored $3 billion in Bitcoin from officially bringing in one of the biggest Silk Road scammers. Now, he was officially brought up on wire fraud charges, and I believe they confiscated something to the tune of 50,000 Bitcoin from his person. Um, Richard, we know that this is like an ongoing narrative. They, you know, There are a lot of scammers out in the marketplace, and of course, many of the Silk Road scammers have already been caught. But with this being one of the biggest recoveries of Bitcoin in history, what does this mean for the overall Bitcoin markets? Is this going to immediately go back into the general supply? I don't think it goes back into the general supply. I think the bigger story here is the Fed. The, the Feds are really out here trying to figure out how they can get Bitcoin scammers. And going back to the whole thing with it being transparent on the blockchain, you can follow the money, you can do all of that. And they obviously have a team dedicated enough to follow the money this intensely to find the person and then cl like claw it back. I would be extremely concerned. If you were seriously trying to scam people on some of these major uh, blockchains that are out here, Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, uh, yeah, the, the feds look like they they got time. They got time and they're they're trying to come get you. So uh, I think it's going to make a lot. I think it's doing nothing but making the chain more safe, in my opinion, because it just shows the links people will go to have justice. Look, I'm not going to complain for a moment about justice, right? Where I do get a little bit of a kick, let's just say, is the fact that you have this immediately being something that goes straight onto the government's balance sheet. And it's frustrating to me because you're not returning it to the people that actually got scammed out of it. None of that is actually going to happen. So whichever way you look at it, it's better for justice, but I'm a little bit disenchanted and... um not exactly stoked about the story. So um, good good overall undertone, but I'm just not, like I'm not happy with how the government's handling this stuff. Um, no. <laughs> like, welcome to election season. All right, let's go into our next story. So in our next story, this, this is actually where things start to look up in our show. Um, we have a really interesting story here about Fidelity and Fidelity has officially announced they're opening commission-free crypto trading to all of its retail investors. Now, this is nothing short of enormous news because if that is the full case and it is commission-free and they're going to be custodying assets, Fidelity is one of the biggest financial institutions in America and I believe also around the world. So to say that they have all those assets under management and all those retail investors can now jump in freely without having to worry about you know exchanges like Coinbase and having to worry about you know things like how to operate a MetaMask, this could be a big onboarding moment for a lot of people and get them direct access to investing in crypto as opposed to investing in things like GBTC and ETFs. Richard, what do you think is the overall implication for this one? We kind of covered this last week about how a lot of these big companies, corporations that have all of these users that are slowly trying to dive into Web3. We're calling it that Web 2.5. Uh, 
this is another one of those moments. Fidelity is huge. They're massive. And they've lost a lot of the people who are interested in crypto who are with them to go to places like Coinbase, FTX, et cetera, so they could get diversification and access to it. Now you're saying like, I don't have to go do that. And I don't have to pay those outrageous fees to buy this asset. And I can roll it into like my 401ks and those other kind of stuff. This is this is big news. Like you said, this this cannot this the undertone of this can't like be stressed enough. Like this is really big news. And like we keep talking about how we get to mass adoption and things like this. This kind of step is a step in the right direction for that. I completely agree with you. Like this is a really big step towards mass adoption. But you as the retail investor and you as the, you know, web3 savvy individual who's ahead of the curve and already here need to understand that this is another example of not your keys, not your crypto, right? You cannot mistake this for a second of as like you are custodying your own assets. No, Fidelity is the one that holds all of the Bitcoin and all the Ethereum in this case. They're going to hold it for you. There is no implication as of yet that you will be able to purchase those assets and then move them to a wallet of your choosing. That piece is not yet clear. So we still need to see what happens with that. But the reason why I bring it up is because in this whole conversation about institutions entering and not your keys, not your crypto, comes larger financial institutions are regularly leveraging your assets because they can. If they custody them, they're going to leverage your assets. That's how they make money. Yeah. But just to add to that real quick for your your person that's infidelity and probably doing a lot of those things, a lot of them don't want to. A lot of them don't want to hold it. They don't want to be responsible and they're fine with paying a higher premium if that means that whoever they have will do it. And But in this one, they're not even having to pay a higher premium because it's commission free. So like, I just, I really like to your everyday consumer who already is in Web3, this probably isn't great. You know, doesn't really make a difference for you because you're probably going to want more control and not have to worry about all this. But for your person who's been on the fence waiting for that moment to get into crypto and also doesn't want to deal with all the stress of figuring it all out. This is super appealing. Yeah. I just think that like it's worth the disclosure still because I think a oh, lot absolutely. of people, like a lot of people are still reeling from what happened with Celsius and what happened with BlockFi and Voyager and maybe happening with our next story. So Binance is CZ, which of course, like Binance is one of the largest exchanges in the world has apparently hit the war path against SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, and FTX. Again, two of the biggest exchanges in the world. They are very, very used to leveraging assets of their customers and all that type of stuff. But the war that um, CZ has been waging has basically been off of a lot of rumor and hearsay that FTX and Alameda Research, which backs FTX, may not in fact have all the assets on hand that they claim. So Binance sold off all of its FTX holdings over the, over the past couple of days. And that is no small feat. That is a lot of money. And basically now we're into question of like, okay, can SBF really back it up? Do they have what they say they have on hand? I don't, I don't know how this one really plays out, man, but it really does look ugly. And frankly, the infighting that we're seeing here is going to have a negative impact on the way that people trust exchanges in crypto. What do you have to say about the entire thing? Because I'm really curious as you're very read in on exchanges. This is 
something that can't be taken lightly, right? So we have the CEO of one of the largest exchanges going after the CEO of another large exchange. That'd be like if the CEO of Bank of America decides to go after the CEO of um, Chase, Chase Bank, right? And they said, Chase Bank really doesn't have all the money they're talking about. You might want to get rid of your position. Like you can't, that's a huge statement. And not only to make the statement, but to also then pull all of your funds at the same time, like that is a massive, massive, massive move. And usually that's, you're usually trying to call someone's bluff, but to then actually do it, that brings another element to it. So people are really starting to look at this and scrutinize. And the, the challenge that we're seeing right now is the amount of money that is claimed to, to be there on the books is, is $8 billion, but through some math, someone was able to kind of pull in and say like, it actually might only be 3 billion. Now, again, this is not verified. All of this is being looked into and we'll be able to report on this once all of the facts come out. But if these accusations are real, <laughs> we're not, I'm not saying this is going to be Celsius-esque, but it could be pretty bad. It could be pretty close. I don't think we're looking at an insolvency, but I do think we're potentially looking at like a significant drop in value as well as, um, some of the things that they have going on might not be able to go through. So like right now they're trying to close on Voyager and I think they still will have that go through, but will that actually dry up the rest of the free money that they had? Don't know. But like, these are all things that we weren't second guessing a week ago, but now you really have to look into this. Like it, when this kind of statement is made, you can't overlook it. So now you have a ton of people looking at FT, uh, FTX under a microscope and really trying to analyze like, are they as legit as they are claiming to be. I think the bigger concern isn't them potentially going the way of like a Celsius because they do have assets on hand. It's going to, the bigger issue here, I think is like why CZ is like very out because there was another note to it. And it's like the fact that CZ sees what SBF is doing from a regulatory standpoint is entirely self-serving. Like that was a big part of why CZ decided to sell all of his FTX tokens uh, from the Binance Reserve. And it's because like SBF has been having like these backroom conversations with US regulators and it's unclear how that's going to affect everybody else. And it's pretty clear that it potentially could really, really serve um, FTX. The thing that would blow my mind about this entire rumor about their true assets on hand is the fact that this is the same company that's been out here in recent weeks saying that they have the money needed to go out and try to buy Coinbase. <laughs> this yeah. is the same company that has said that they wanted a stake in Elon Musk's Twitter. Like they, there's a lot of money at play here. And I think it is it almost seems like it's an improbability at this stage of the game that FTX has a discrepancy on its books. I would sooner say that FTX probably just has a big image issue and this is just retaliation. Again, just my two cents, my two Satoshis, if you will, but let's go ahead and keep this ball rolling forward. Coinbase just came out the other day formalizing its support for Ripple's case against the SEC with its own amicus brief filing. 
Now, this basically is Coinbase coming out as a friend of Ripple for the first time legitimately on paper, letting the court know their belief that Ripple is not, in fact, a security and giving a you know full understanding as to why they believe that's that to be the case. Richard, this could bode really, really well for Ripple, but it needs to bode well for the entire market because we yeah. need more friendly moves like this. If Library had a Coinbase in its corner, we wouldn't have ended up with the language that we had in that first piece of news we talked about today. What do you think of this? Is this going to start becoming more of the norm or is this just a one-off? I think it's a one-off. I think the Ripple case has been happening for an extended amount of time and it's looking more and more like they're going to be winning. So there is, it looks it's safer to try to back a potential winning horse. Now, it's not done. It's not saying that Ripple is ultimately going to win. It's just pointing to the direction that they most likely will. And so... How can Coinbase continue to d- differentiate itself from like other exchanges, et cetera, get that market share, get those hardcore crypto people is by making statements like this. So I think it's strategic, but again, it's, it does stink that, you know, with what came out today that they didn't have bigger names behind them as well to try to help like alleviate the, the ruling that happened today. Yeah, no question about that. Well, let's move into one of our final stories in the lightning round today. And that has to do with Japan's digital ministry launching a DAO to understand the functionality of DAOs. This was one of the funnier stories that I've heard, um, especially in the last like month. Because what Japan did this past week is they literally came out with their statement saying, we're launching a DAO to understand how DAOs work. That's the headline. Like that, like that's the tweet, guys. That's the whole um, thing. Why was this necessary? So people learn by doing. Like, I mean, uh, as funny as this is, like, I get it. Like, sometimes, like, if, if there's something new that I want to learn, I just say, I'm just going to go do it and figure it out and see what happens. And then I can know how to do it better the next time. But, like, the fact that they just blatantly just said, like, yeah, we're trying to learn this thing, so we're just going to do it. It's just, I don't know. It sounds, it's just funny. I think that's pretty hilarious. Yeah, I, there's not a lot more, not a lot more to it, but I guess they couldn't have found any experts around to go talk to. So whatever. Um, another funny story to cap off the lightning round today before we move into last week in the metaverse, and that is J.P. Morgan reversing its stance on DeFi. That's the question, and I think the answer is they weren't in a negative stance on DeFi to begin with. Uh, Jamie Dimon, who's the head of JP Morgan, has long been saying how he believes all of crypto is a Ponzi scheme and blah, like it's all BS. It's um, his comment, like just how he says that, like, and Warren Buffett and everybody else says, like, crypto is a Fugazi, like, it's all garbage. That's them, like, that. this is me calling what he's saying a Fugazi in itself because none of it's true. They're just saying it to appease the fact that their investors need them to, their investors need to believe that the banks are going to fight off crypto because if they don't, technically the banks are going to lose market share to crypto and therefore the investors will not be happy, right? That to me is the entire story there. That's all it is. Because across the last month, they've been participating in something called Project Guardian. And it's something they've done in the APAC region where essentially they've been using DeFi on Aave to test the functionality and the use cases of DeFi with, you know, um, 
what is it? I think it was a stable coin version of the Singapore currency and yen. So it's something they're actively experimenting with. Don't downplay that. That's huge. But also don't take everything Jamie Dimon or Warren Buffett says as law. Richard, any final thoughts on this one before we head into the metaverse? People talk out of both sides of their mouths. People say that they're not going to do stuff and they eventually do. Uh, the only example I'm going to pull up in this example, Netflix tweeted like a year or two ago, we will never do subscriptions. And what are they rolling out? Subscriptions. Things change. They always will. So let's move forward into last week in the metaverse. And at the top of these stories could be none other than the news out of Instagram. Instagram, as of last week, officially made the move to pretty much launch themselves as an NFT marketplace. This is a humongous deal because just like Reddit, you know, making the move into NFTs and basically opening wallets for all of their users, this is going to give every single Instagram influencer and user the ability to sell their, their NFTs or their pictures as NFTs directly to their audience. It's a brand new monetization method for them. I think it's going to be very widely used. And beyond that, they aim to deal with Polygon for issuing those NFTs directly through Instagram. You are a Polygon megable. I know that. How is this going to play out across you know, other competitors and other social networks? They better keep up. Polygon keeps making these big deals because they're being forward-thinking, innovative, and they're making it worth the while of every marketplace that they are getting with. I think Polygon continues to play it right. Now, what I think is really interesting with this is that you now have these influencers who don't have to do a whole lot and just like, oh, do you want to buy this picture? Now it's an NFT. You want it and you have the rights to it. Like, um, Imagine the, the Instagram famous Instagram model people who now can just have this new revenue, potential revenue stream. Like it just, it's a such low barrier to entry model that it makes perfect sense for something like in this Instagram to do. And like, I just don't know any other ecosystems that are out here trying to finesse those kinds of deals and are pulling them off. So again, kudos, kudos to Polygon. Polygon is out here making moves, folks. Be mindful of it. All right, next story, art gobblers. You may look at the picture if you're watching on YouTube, and if you're not watching on YouTube and you're listening over on your podcast platform of choice, I recommend you check out our YouTube channel. You can follow along with our stories on screen and get to know Richard and I a little bit more visually. The Art Gobblers project launched last week, and it was a project that was in collaboration between both Paradigm, which is a major VC, and Justin Roiland, who's one of the animators behind Rick and Morty. There was a lot of talk about this project, a lot in the lead up. Like a lot of people were really excited about it. But their launch has since been mired in controversy over this ongoing influencer ethics debate and like whether or not influencers should be able to commentate on things like this launch and just be receiving free NFTs for talking about it and then dumping those NFTs on their audience as exit liquidity. Now, I'm not going to engage in the ethical debate of this because I think it's pretty damn straightforward and you don't need to get complicated about it. But what I found a little bit insane is that like this might have been a great case in point about just how significant an influencer pump 
can actually be. Art gobblers on mint shot up to like 15, 20 ETH. And they had an ungodly amount of volume. Like a lot of people were buying these things at 15 or 20 ETH. But because of the influencers that were involved with it, the sell-off since has been catastrophic for investors. We're talking dropping as low as 5 ETH. Okay, so if you're buying at 25 or 20 ETH, you're immediately down to a 15 ETH loss pretty much in a week. 75 to 80% loss in a week. It's tough. Yep. And I'm not saying that like that's not part of the game, but it is really unfortunate. And I think it's brought up a lot of questions. How do you view it across the board here, Rich? Because I don't. I don't agree with what the influencer doing, influencers are doing, but I also know that projects are still limited in what they can do to really make sure their launch goes off without a hitch. This is the reoccurring challenge that we see with potential botched launches with NFT projects. When projects have their issues, a lot of the times it's at mint and within like the first couple of days. And what I think sometimes projects greatly overestimate is when you get a you build up all this hype and awareness and people want to get in and 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 help drive this awareness. If people feel like they got slighted, if people feel like they got cheated, they will make their money cut and run. And you're really trying to build a brand. You're trying to build this this uh, community around you that's going to survive the test of time. And if it feels like people are out here just trying to make a quick buck. You're really just going to have see a community turn on you. And we, we have seen that happen with multiple projects in the last year. So I think it has a, a mix to do between strategic thinking with the, the team that's putting it on, but then also like, who are you trusting for your go-to-market and, and execution strategy once you, once you are out in, into the market? Because like what sucks with all this is you put all this energy and, and money into like building out this amazing NFT brand and then to just kind of see it implode before it even gets started, it's 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 tough to rally back from that. But to, to pose it back to you, man, like, what do you think went wrong here? A lot. I really do think the influencer side of it was probably the largest contributing factor, but it seemed to me that because you had like in a very immediate amount of VC money in this, that that easily could have been the thing that just derailed it, right? And we saw a very similar thing happen with a couple different VC-backed projects that were launching across the last year. I think that, you know, Moonbirds is probably one of the leaders that I would say was directly affected by that, where you had a lot of VC money coming in early. Other side, also another great example of it. But in this case, like, it's going to sound really shitty, but like Paradigm is not a VC that is known as, you know, the VC of the people. They're a VC of their private interests. They always have been. Look at the leadership. I'm not going to name names, but look at the leadership. They very clearly influenced, you know, both the artist, Justin Roiland, and the team that was behind Art Gobblers in the direction, what they expected, all of these things. And they're not above influencer marketing. 
by no means. So I would call that like tier one, grade A hypocrisy, like at the best. But this to me is more a debate of that. It's like, do you want to go into a project that is going to have an insane amount of volume right on day one? Or do you want one that's going to really build? And to me, the answer is you want the one that's going to build. You want the one that's going to work toward getting VC backing. You want the one that's going to work towards making the next Yuga Labs slightly more ethical, but still the next Yuga Labs. So there's a lot of problems with it, but I do believe that a lot of the influencers that did benefit from this, they probably were not nearly as thoughtful about it as they should have been. But I, I don't think that's also a bad thing because I don't think they actually were aware of the amount of influence that Paradigm carries. Nobody really is. It's one of the it's one of the VCs that flies very under the radar in terms of their actions. So I'll leave it at that. Um, but let's go into our next story and work through the rest of the metaverse related news for last week. This one was probably the most uplifting story to me, and it's hard for for it's hard for me to think anything other than that. Meta Angels is a project we've covered on the show in the past. Great team, great project, great initiative. They've officially been acquired by a project called The Hug, which is a project started by Randy Zuckerberg um, and Jenny Soon, I believe. The parent company of The Hug is called Assemble. And that is a project that is, by definition, building what is called the Inclusiverse. It's a really, like, I, I don't like using this language, but it's the only one that's coming to mind right now. Like, it is a very woke project. It's meant to really bring newcomers into the space and allow them to feel like they're not just exclusively hanging out with crypto and giga chads, right? This is a very well-intentioned project, very good vision, very good plans. And I see this more so as a really fantastic merger um, that will be doing some really profound things into the future. I'm just excited to see what Randy Zuckerberg has planned next. Because this can't be it, right? No, I think it's just the beginning. Uh, we had the opportunity to to meet during uh, NFT NYC. Uh, me and you both did, and you know, got to also meet some of the team behind Meta Angels as well. And like, it, this synergy just makes a ton of sense to me. And like, they really genuinely want to do good, and that's what I appreciate about what they're doing. Like you said, of the feel good stories of the week, this is definitely it. So I have nothing but good things to say about this, and it's exciting stuff. Yeah, it's like two complementary pieces of the same pie coming together. You know, the hug is really focused on like big time education and information and proper information gathering and community involvement. Whereas Meta Angels is really about inter-community service and trying to help people connect with the right resources and tapping into the value that really is your community. So yeah, I, I see a lot of potential out of this. I think there's going to be a lot of big things to come. I'm personally pretty pumped about it, um, considering I'm a holder in both of these collections. But we're going to carry this thing forward and talk a little bit about CryptoPunks. This one is just another feel-good story, right? The CryptoPunks have officially become the first NFT to be featured in the Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, again, like they are a historic project, no? Like they kind of deserve to be in the Guinness World Record book. My next question is, what else deserves to be in the Guinness World Record book as it relates to crypto and NFTs? Biggest, um, you know, federal um, Bitcoin poll, right? 
that type of thing? Or are we just gonna be talking about more projects that have made big strides or, you know, the top NFT holders? Like there's a lot of unique things that may find its way into Guinness, but I don't know. What's your read? Um, it again, I think it makes sense that they are in in the Guinness uh book of world records. Other stuff that could make it in there, the greatest crypto trade of all time, or any trade of all time, which shout out to Sheeb. Turns out it's that. Uh, there's there's a tremendous amount of Web3 content that can find its way into web into the world records. And I'm and I'm sure they will. There's a world record for almost anything in the world. They're gonna find a space for Web3. I'm confident. Biggest rug pull of all time. <laughs> the lady who's on the, the the most wanted list, right? She's on like the world's like top. Oh, her, yeah, wanted. biggest, biggest crypto scam in history. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of fun ones out there they could feature. Guinness, if you're looking for ideas, hit us up. All right, let's jump into our last story today. Our last story, again, I guess, is coming back to Ripple, right? So Ripple has announced the official launch of their NFT token standard. And it's being met with like a lot of mixed reactions. A lot of people just want to see Ripple being used for what it's supposed to be used for. But because it is such a light and nimble platform and the token is so versatile, there's a lot of reasons why it might be really, really well suited for NFTs. I don't know how this one's going to play out, Richard. I really don't. I think that I would sooner see NFTs on a platform that's light and nimble like Cardano um, because it's decentralized. What do you think? Well, Cardano's NFT platform is starting to pick up a lot of steam and getting a lot more artists and creativity on it. And that's, we can cover that another day. But as far as this goes... Who's going to be using Ripple's NFT standards? Like, it, yeah, it, it, if they win this case, they're back working with like traditional banks and stuff. Like, banks about to make NFTs? I don't know. But like, is there a unique use case? Like, let's say that they want to start putting like CDs and um, they want to start putting things like deeds to houses and cars and other stuff like that. Like, could that be used on it? I see a future for that. Like that makes sense. Things that are kind of like wrapped into the web two world and trying to bring it into web three. I see the use case for those NFTs, but for like your everyday artists, I just, I just don't see that happening. Yeah. This one's a coin flip to me. It really is because I think that there is no doubt that we're headed for a multi-coin future and it's going to be multi-chain. Like we're going to see interoperability at play. But when it comes to NFTs, there's going to be a dominant platform. I just, I have to imagine there's going to be one or two or three dominant platforms. I don't think Ripple is that platform. I think Ripple is going to be used as it was originally intended, as a payment rail. And I respect that use case entirely. That's also not to say that there aren't things that can be transmitted across payment rails that are needed that can be basically brought on chain via NFTs. Okay. Like titles, deeds, all that stuff. So like that's a, that is a counter to this case, right? So to me, I think it's, it's a positive story. I'm glad they're trying to innovate over there, but I just wish they would get past the damn SEC case first. Hey, they got to keep building and growing it. So whenever this thing is over, they're not just like then starting, but like, I, I get it. But like, that, dude, it's the SEC. They're going to drag this out as long as they can. 
Yeah, I mean, they're literally just trying to fight a war of attrition at this point, right? Yeah. Not that it hasn't been that for a year. At any rate, let's just leave Ripple where it is and move into a little bit of a quick retrospective on the week. We had a brand new interview that came out on Monday. Richard, who did you have a chance to sit down with this week? So I talked to Tony Harmon, who is with uh, uh, Universe. It was his gigantic community-owned gaming franchise. So this is one of the lead builders for franchises such as Donkey Kong and uh, Grand Theft Auto and several other hit names that you have probably played at some point in your life if you have played any sort of game. So went to the side, wanted to be able to really create a community and opportunity for people who are growing in its game uh, universe. Basically, imagine being able to create a superhero and then being able to go to a lot of different worlds and games and take that superhero with you and, and develop new uh, abilities and powers and everything else. And they, they, they have some of the writers from some of the best different uh, gaming platforms and, and other studios out there too. Like it's a really dope interview. Like my mind was blown the whole time I was geeking out. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. I, I really like, if you are in gaming, go listen to this, like straight up, go listen. <laughs> Definitely worth checking out. And look, if you are looking for more great content from us, you can, of course, play back through some of those old interviews. But definitely make sure you subscribe over on YouTube so you can be alerted whenever we've got a brand new interview out or a brand new episode of The Aftershock goes live on Wednesdays. We, of course, also tweet pretty regularly over at um, our Twitter account at underscore cryptocurrent underscore. But you can, of course, follow Richard and I. You can follow me at Steve Miller underscore PHX. Follow him at Richard Carthon, but be sure you are following the show over on your favorite podcast platforms so that you can listen to this in the car, you know, work out and hear a little bit more about crypto from us, or just simply go less visual, right? Maybe, you know, you don't like how I look and I'm dragging this experience down for you. Who knows? Either way, we hope that you come back and see us next week. We've got another episode of the Aftershock cooking for you and that's going to do it for us, but we'll see you next time. Stay Cryptocurrent. Catch you later. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cryptocurrent. Cryptocurrent is a cryptocurrency and blockchain education platform that's bridging the gap between the curious newcomers who are just discovering the space and the thought leaders who are shaping its future. All opinions expressed by Richard Carthon, the Cryptocurrent team, and their guests on this show are exclusively their own opinions. This show and any other Cryptocurrent production is exclusively for informational purposes. 